Hello, welcome to How to Get Into Law School, a Seven Sage podcast. Join us weekly to walk through the entire law school admissions process from application to orientation. In this episode, this is part two of our Reddit AMA. I'm Jake, and joining me as always are Brigitte and Aaron. Are you ready to, to dive back into these questions? Yeah, I'm excited to see some more questions. We've got lots of them. Awesome. Next up are a series of questions specifically about international applicants. So from the humbly titled Just God Complex, there seems to be a consensus among applicants, particularly on Reddit, that us international applicants are at a disadvantage in general, and especially if we apply later on in the cycle. Or is it just that our LSAT scores are the single most important data points because GPA system is different for us? How true are these? How do you think international applicants should approach their applications? Any words of advice? And most importantly, thanks for doing this. So, okay, we got a lot going on in there. So let's start out with, actually, let's start out with that first comment, which is more of a comment than a question. Are international applicants at a disadvantage in general in the admissions process? What do you think, Brigida? Oh, that is, that is a complicated question because there are, I mean, even among international applicants, there's some differences, right? There's, there's the applicant that's coming straight from their country. They have their own BA or LLB or whatever it might be. So they truly only do have the LSAT score. And for those applicants, the LSAT score really is extremely important. It's the only hard number. So of course, it's going to be the most important hard number. All the other soft factors still count and still count um, quite a bit but it is the one hard factor. So for those folks, yes, I, I do think the LSAT score is extremely important. But there are the other international students that went to the, to a U.S. or Canadian institution for undergrad, so they have a GPA. And for them, the GPA means as much as it does for anyone else. So that's that. And then there's the other piece about, you know, just about what are international students going to do when they graduate? There's a lot of, you know, I think I've been made to understand it now. It's only a one-year visa that they work visa that they're able to get. Unless I think they, so. Yeah. Unless yeah. They, they, they pair it with a STEM MA and then they get two years. I mean, so there's the, all these strategies that international students have. But from the law school perspective, it's a little tricky because if you only have one year, you know, it, it's a, there's a smaller number of employers who are willing to go through the recruitment and training process for someone who may not have a work visa a year later. So I think there's a little bit of that pressure. That's how I see it. What about you? And, and I agree. And to take an additional angle on this question, which is, are they at a more significant disadvantage if they apply later on in the cycle? I don't know if they're at any more of a disadvantage if they apply later in the cycle. I think that they're just in the same boat as everyone else regarding later in the cycle. And at least let's say they that an applicant has an LSAT over the target median and they apply in January. I don't think being an international applicant is the reason why they may end up on a wait list. They may end up on the wait list just because it's January when you're submitting your application. So schools have already been reviewing apps. They've been making offers of admission and they would rather manage their enrollment off the wait list than potentially over-admit, especially the last couple of years as, as national applications have been a bit higher. So I don't think that's necessarily an international versus domestic thing. What could be an international thing is that when I was in an admissions office, I typically received fewer letters of continuing interest from my international applicants than my domestic students. The letters of continuing interest I got were typically less detailed about my school specifically and about why this school was a great fit for them. And I will acknowledge that perhaps Notre Dame just isn't as attractive of an option for international applicants because of rank, because of location. However, you know, pound for pound, you'd assume that you'd get a solid amount of communication from those candidates. And we, we really didn't. 
So that could also be an issue here, you know, that later on in the admissions process, if you're making some pretty fine decisions between very similar candidates, and one just seems to want it more, that could also be a difference here. And so additionally, there's the the last question here. How do you think international applicants should approach their applications? You know, we covered that in, a, in another episode of this this podcast, but Brigitte, I, th- I think you hit it on the nose with your comments that you want to make sure that you're addressing the elephant in the room, which is what's the plan? Given visa restrictions, is the plan to go back home and practice? And how does an American JD help you there, especially if you already have an LLB in your home country? On the flip side, if the plan is to practice in the States, in what field or what are you thinking about doing? I think that that just reassures the admissions office that you're going to be employable on the back end of things. But, But what do you think? Yeah, employable one way or another and happy one way or another. Like there's a there's a thought out career path. Yes, of course, you'd love to possibly love to stay in the US, have a job, maybe even be able to extend that. That does happen. Some folks go for the lottery and then they are able to do that. That's all possible and great. But it also might be possible that after a year, you do return to your country and they want to make sure there's a plan there that where your JD makes sense. Because it's three years of your life, a big investment. You know, they don't want unhappy students who aren't getting what, what they want for reasons that are, that has nothing to do with law school, right? That's U.S. immigration policy, U.S. labor policy. So that's important. And then also sometimes when the economy's down or it's a really politically fraught moment, I think those things can be even more difficult, right? Again, those are all things even out of the applicant's control and the law school's control. So it's just a, yeah, yeah. Oh, totally. I mean, I, I would sometimes say this with students back a, a couple years ago, you know, there's there's an election around the corner. So we'll see about loan repayment or we'll see about visa programs, but it can shift rather drastically rather quickly in some cases. So we certainly feel for our, our international applicants because of that. But, you know, as long as they're approaching their application with that sense of here's the plan of what I want to achieve and here's how I can best communicate that to admissions officers, I think that they're just fine. And, and if they can get their applications in, a little bit earlier and and by a little bit, even just before American Thanksgiving in November. I think that that's to their benefit, just like every other applicant. Yeah. And we definitely see tons of, you know, we work with international students. We see a lot of them have really good success. So there's definitely a pathway there. It, it can be just a little more complicated, but but we've definitely seen folks get in really great schools. Totally. Well, let's move on to our next question, which comes, you know, there are different categories of students. And so for those who may not be familiar with the Reddit lingo, This is a student who has what we would call KJD anxiety, and KJD stands for kindergarten through JD. You're coming directly out of undergrad. There's no gap in your education. So the question from Kelly 7 is, is there a way to improve your chances at a T14 as a KJD? There's not a lot of information out there besides the ones who discourage it in favor of work experience. Should you mention why you specifically want to go straight to law school instead of taking time off? And then there's a second part to this question, which we'll get to. Okay, but hey, Aaron, in general, what do you think? Have, have you noticed any different perspectives you try to encourage students who are coming directly out of undergrad? Or is it kind of all the same? This stuff kind of makes me crazy because it's like what I I think that this whole the KJD anxiety is an artifact of Reddit as far as I can tell. Like if you ask a question on Reddit, you're going to get you're going to hear both sides, right? And and it's going to in this case I think skew toward like well, there's advantages and disadvantages. It's a complex issue which I don't think it really is a complex issue. Whoever you are, if you're applying to law school, you need to have reasons for doing that and you need to articulate those reasons and you also need to be or at least appear to be a mature applicant, not because 
that's particularly required of a KJD applicant. It's required of, of all applicants. So it, it doesn't, being KJD doesn't matter in the slightest if, if you've got, you know, interesting experience in your resume and, and you have like an interesting story to tell and a reason for going to law school. I suppose the only, you may be at a disadvantage just because you haven't had time to pile up that kind of experience. But I also don't think a huge amount of it is really required as long as you're able to make the argument that you you have a reason for doing this. I think sometimes there's a subset of KJD applicant that is uh, forced to apply to law school by their parents or applying to law school because they don't know what else to do or like <laughs> or during the pandemic, you know, like everybody goes home their senior year and they're just like sitting in the living room with their parents staring at them from the other side of the room and so they apply to law school, you know, but that's that's different, you know. I think it's I think the imperative is exactly the same and you're not at any kind of disadvantage. Yeah. Well, I've noticed in admissions that there tend to be like the students tend to break into two camps, either the ones who who are way more confident than they should be in their profile and in their goals. And then there are the students who think that everything is going to be held against them. And, you know, like one place that this manifested was when I worked in undergraduate admissions, every student thought that they were disadvantaged by the, the high school they attended, either because and I think most people when they hear this immediately go, oh, students who maybe are attending under-resourced high schools, you know, they're kind of that diamond in the rough in in a school that doesn't see a lot of students go on to four-year colleges or maybe doesn't have a lot of AP classes that, that are offered. And heck, would an admissions officer understand the context of my success? But believe you me, it, it was definitely in the other direction too of, my problem is that I attend the school where everyone goes to four-year colleges and like 20 kids go to Ivies and, you know, they're recruited D1 athletes. And how am I going to stand out in this context that is not typical of a usual American high school? So I kind of read that in this question too. Like the KJDs think that they're disadvantaged because they don't have work experience. The people with five years of work experience worry that that's working to their disadvantage because they have to explain why they want to pivot in their career. And hey, like you said, as long as you're providing that clear rationale as to why you want to go to law school, it's not a problem to come either directly out of undergrad or after a couple of years. But I do want to get on that question of should you mention why specifically you want to go straight to law school instead of taking time off? When I read that, I read a little bit of providing an explanation for something that you think is a problem, which actually isn't a problem. And it's probably better to frame your application from a position of your strengths and from confidence as opposed to perceived weaknesses or holes in your application, of which this is not one. And this is a different category than like a character and fitness issue perhaps being a weakness. But from a writing perspective, what do you think of that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's a there's always a delicate psychological game. People may not have a question in their minds until you state the explanation for the answer to that question, you know? And even if the answer is satisfactory, the question is still raised when it doesn't have to be. I think like, I, I just tend to think that there's a, I tend to think readers are not super conscious of what's happening to them when they're reading something, you know, and you can, you can control their experience of reading more than you think you can. And if you, if you just you breathe, you sort of breeze through that statement, and it's a clear why law, and it's enthusiastic, and it's mature, and it has a few interesting, memorable things in it, you don't need to worry about the other stuff. You don't need to worry about, there is actually, so there's a subset of this question, though I can't remember if you read it, Jake, but on a related note, I am graduating early. Should I mention or explain why? Yeah. So that is something that you probably need to address because that's something that's going to be apparent from the transcript. So the question is already going to be in the reader's mind. I would say you need an explanation. The hold on, though, because I'm not sure about that. I, you know, who cares if someone graduated for three years? That's more of an issue of 
How many APs you might have had? Does your school allow APs? Well, I just don't, I don't understand why that would matter to, you know, and I do think people who do graduate in three years like to make a big deal out of it in the application. I just never found it very interesting or compelling or, or something that I needed to know. So what do you think? I, under, I understand if you're 17. I do, I do have a few people who went to college at 15 or 16. And so they're 20 when they get out of college and they're going to law school. I mean, I think it is different. But if you're your, your regular four years of high school, you graduated 17, 18, went to college, got out in three years, I don't need to know that. But that's that's me. What do you guys think? Well, and just to clarify, so the, the follow-up question here was, on a related note, I'm graduating a year early. Should I mention or explain why I'm graduating early? I'll be freshly 21 upon entering law school, which may be a concern. Should I mention mentioned that I'm quote unquote mature. So no. just to clear that, clarify that for our audience. So Aaron, continue. The quotation marks for mature. Are, yeah, I like the quotation marks around mature. Isn't that always? I feel like I'm usually question mark mature. We, shouldn't we always say it? <laughs> question mark mature. <laughs> yeah, exactly. or, or yeah, or air of quotes course. mature. I, it's still a no for me. I just don't <laughs> understand why that would be interesting. And certainly you don't want to mention that you're mature because I, I don't know. That's like mentioning you're you're not a crook or something like that. But yeah, that's odd. Why 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 would you? Yeah, no. I, I I guess I'm thinking more like what you said, Brigitte, about people whose transcript appears a little stranger. So graduating one year early can't. I think it can look weird if there's not if it's not clear why it's happened or something on the transcript. And, and maybe somebody thinks, are you leaving? All have you forgotten to send the transcript from a community college or something like that or whatever? Did you transfer? But I, I, I certainly worked with lots of people who, who graduated like in two years or went to college when they were 15, 16. And I, I mean, it was a small sample size, but I did notice that those students did worse in this process. And yeah, and I think some, and some of them did not have a compelling reason for going to college that early. And, and I think that, that kind of compounded the sense that they were, you know, not, that, that they may not be getting into this for, for the right reasons. It may be sort of like momentum. Yeah, I think yeah. that, and that would be a, an argument, you know, that someone like that might want to work a couple of years, right? If you're out of college at, you know, 18 or 19, because you started when you were 16, then I would say, go ahead and work and, and, and fill that gap with something really constructive. So that would be almost a, you know, a, a little bit of an addendum to what we otherwise feel. If you're your standard K through JD, I have I have no problem with that. But sure, if you're you know 19 and graduating from college because you started college at at 15, sure, it might be time to get a little work experience and get. A, and it is a small sample size, but I I can remember at least four or five people I've talked to in that position. Yeah. And from my experience, yeah, yeah. there usually is a pretty big overlap between students who graduate in three years or quicker and the strength of their resume, because typically the acceleration of your academic path comes at the expense of your involvement off campus, because you have to either overload on credit hours during the semester or you take summer classes. And it could be through AP credit, like you said, Brigida. But, you know, usually if I see a three-year graduate, I see a weaker resume. And that then leads to what Aaron is saying, which is probably results which are not commiserate with their stats. So there are exceptions to this rule. Like I, I remember there was a three-year graduate one time who we admitted and who enrolled at Notre Dame who was also student body president of his university as a third-year senior. To give an easy example, yeah, that's an exception to the rule, right? That's a substantial leadership experience and responsibility. That's not the norm. So if you're graduating a little early, I don't think you have to explain it or feel bad for it or excuse it because it's probably an economic thing more than anything else. But you may want to take a look in the mirror and say, but how does my resume look? I accelerated my academic path. Cool. Is there anything else I'd like to work on either in the short term or do I want to take my shot at law schools? And then if it doesn't pan out, okay, I'll go work for a little bit of time and, and that's not the end of the world. 
if you're going to say you're mature, at least don't take put the the quotation marks on there. <laughs> Just straight up, you're mature. And and obviously, ask Kelly 007, hey, we're laughing with you. We're not poking fun. Promise. Oh, yeah, that's important. Sorry, S. Kelly. I, we didn't mean to be 100% because, again, yeah. like I said, most days I am air quote mature, not straight up mature. But let's pivot here. So we got a couple questions about resumes from sus- either Sussy Sand or Sussy's And. Eh, you know, <laughs> half of, or half dozen of one, etc. So I have a fairly large professional gap of two to three years from taking care of a sick relative. How would you go about addressing that during the process? Aaron, what do you think? I mean, that's a big, big gap, right? I mean, what is that? So for an understandable reason. So this is this is a classic one. I I guess, you know, I, this is very common. And we see a gap of three months, six months, maybe a year. I've never seen a gap of two to three years. What what does that, you know, you get an application that has a gap of that size and we have a, just a straight up factual addendum explaining the circumstances. Does that allay your doubts about their sort of professional readiness or is, is there is more required? I think it depends on where it falls in their in their professional arc too, right? If they took a few years off to, to help a family member and then and then went back to work and, and had some track record of a career, I think that's no problem at all. I, you know, I want to put a hand up for those who are parents of young children. A lot of people take time off and I think that should be valued and you don't see it as much, but I wish we would see it more actually, because I, I do think law schools would understand that. So I think it really does depend on the context. I, th- I think what you want to show you know, let's say hopefully there's been some career after that. Let's say the time doesn't really work while you were taking care of the sick relative. You are applying to law school. That's okay too, I suppose. But you do want to show how that phase is behind you for whatever reason. Like you're going to be able to come to law school and be focused and and not be drawn away for, for family reasons, hopefully. Yeah. I mean, you could actually just put this on your resume. So there may not be a gap per se, because I this this is a continual discussion with students is how to put personal experiences on your resume. And if it's two to three years, and if you were the caretaker for a family member with a terminal illness, or who is going through a, a very harsh physical re- rehabilitation process, if I were reading that on a resume, I would not think that that's inappropriate. And it would help me to understand why there's a gap between, say, your your graduation from, from college and now applying to law school, or Brigitte, like you said, a gap between graduating from college and then you started working at a law firm as paralegal, you know, a year ago. So it's okay to put it there. It's okay to put it on the addendum as an explanation. Either would be just fine by me as, as someone reading an application. I, I think I'd also, you know, a gap of that size, I would I would maybe suggest more context than if it had been six months, you know, six months taking care of a sick grandparent. Everybody understands that. I think two to three years taking care of a, of a sick relative, you need to explain maybe what your what your role was as a caretaker in slightly more detail. And I'd maybe also say, you know, one, two, three sentences about what else you were doing. I, I remember I had a student last year who was in this position, I think it was about like an 18 month gap. So she didn't have any professional experience from that time. But she did talk about some of the interests that she had and the things that she had been doing. And I thought that was that was relatively compelling. It, it spoke to, you know, intellectual curiosity and a certain like maturity with respect to her own psychological well being. So, you know, here's, here's what I was doing to kind of help myself through this time, because this was a stressful time for me also. And um, I thought that that worked pretty well. And and I think maybe put yeah I plus one on on that comment and then also maybe why it was you taking care of that person right so 
you know, maybe you were the only family member available, or maybe there was a special relationship, or there could be something that's really quite lovely or makes it all the more understanding that you were the one that had to take care of this person. If the person had dementia, well, it makes sense that it could be two or three years. It's not something that's, you know, an acute illness that the person either recovers from or dies from, but this is something that can really drag on. So I think context really matters, but I, I wouldn't want to dissuade that person from from applying to law school. And, it, you know, and I do think I, I think I'm going to lean on doing it as an addendum because the length of time and the context needed. But I do, I do have someone I'm working with that, that you know, great professional job during COVID, one year of tutoring, and then a great professional job. And we kind of debated that should it be gap in employment or should it be on the resume? Because it, you know, she's still relatively young, and it was one year, it was COVID, and it was tutoring. I went, I, I kind of lean towards just put it on the resume and don't worry about the gap in employment addendum. What do you guys think about that? It's kind of a variation on this question. Right. But, but Birgitta, you said the key word there, which is COVID. And, and the key word in my mind, because I think we as a society have become far more attuned and far more understanding post-COVID, still in COVID, but you know what I mean, post-March 13th, 2020 of you had to do what you had to do. And that may relate to personal health, family health. It may also relate to transcripts. So we, we get questions all the time about how do I explain my school's grading policies during COVID? Will it look bad if I have pass-fail for a semester? Guys, we all did what we had to do, okay? And as long as you just provide an explanation of it, I think that we're all more understanding of the commitments that we have had to make outside of an, an 8 to 5 office setting or 8 to 5 academic setting now versus where our heads were all in February 2020 and earlier. So, but to that question directly, oh yeah, just put on, you know, you were tutoring for a year. Yep, just put it on the resume. I wouldn't even know any better. I would not perceive that as gap. Just jumping on your, your point about the grading policy because of COVID, I actually have seen a couple situations that were a real bummer where a school obligated folks to have pass fail, even though it was a couple people who, you know, maybe had not done as well the semester before and were really counting on those grades to, to, to boost their GPA. So, you know, even though I'm sure those schools did it for, for an empathetic reason, it does have negative consequences for folks. It's, it, yeah, real bummer. Brigitte, speaking of like, if someone wanted to go back in time on this, this subreddit and look at the conversations happening in April <laughs> 2020, that was exactly the topic, how law schools were approaching the grading policy for the spring 2020 semester. And there were students who were in that exact situation that you you stated. There were other students who were saying, I can't believe that my law school is going to have grades or give me the opportunity for grades because I'm currently, you know, stuck in my parents' basement with with shoddy internet trying to watch, you know, Zoom webinars of a professor who doesn't know what the heck he's doing with digital technology. It, like, I just had that, like, PTSD flashback of, oh, these conversations. Again, point being, we all get what was happening at that time and that these decisions may have been completely out of your hands, too. That they, they were school policies that you may not have had the opportunity to have any input in. But back to the note of resumes. So another question we got about resumes from Secretly Psycho was, how to make my resume stand out when I have a few years of experience before applying to law school? So Aaron, you know, as, as the writing expert here, what do you think? Secretly psycho. Let's just pause <laughs> over that for a second. <laughs> Again, I think I wouldn't worry hugely about it. You have a few years experience, 
great. You know, to describe your experience in a in a crisp way so that somebody can somebody who's scanning that resume can see immediately what you did, what your responsibilities were, whether you had a leadership role, what what skills you might you might have had to use. I think that you know, I, there's lots of sort of visual tricks, I suppose. To me the the resume it doesn't matter as much, you know, well, I don't know. Let me back up. Like, what does a few years mean, I suppose? If if, if there's a lot of years and that's going to be a confusing amount of experience, then I suppose that's a different question. Then you go for, you know, a selected experience section or something like that, and you only include the most recent experience. And if you have a couple jobs early on, like food service jobs or something like that, you maybe don't need a bullet point for those. So, I, I don't know. To me, I suppose it's it's how much experience is there. If, if, if it's four years, great. If it's more than that, then maybe you do need to think about what has happened recently and emphasize emphasize things that are relevant. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Highlight the most relevant stuff. And you can still have an entry that says, you know, other work or, you know, I don't know, some kind of, yeah, food services work if you have worked at 12 restaurants between, you know, high school and, and law school. So there are lots of different ways to highlight the, 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 the most relevant pieces while still reflecting your full range of experience, which I, which I think is, is nice to do. And then just a note on, you know, it sure is great if your work experience is relevant and impressive and all these other things. But even if it's not, I've seen people get into really great schools as long as everything else lines up because law schools understand that not everybody can get the fancy jobs and, and that there are some, you know, equity issues into who gets some of those and who doesn't get some of those. So I think even, you know, work experience is great all around and, and make the most of what you have, basically. And I would just offer, you know, when I see questions about how to make a resume stand out, I think that may be approaching the question in a different way than I would. Because from a, an application evaluation perspective, I just want to be able to use the resume to quickly, cleanly, and efficiently understand what the student has done, when they did it, what the responsibilities were, etc., so just having a clean and easy resume to review makes it stand out. Sometimes students who try to pack too much information into the resume, it becomes too cluttered and it makes it challenging to actually pick out the most salient points. So, I mean, not to say that this is, I don't want to reduce things down to just formatting. However, like a cleanly formatted resume just will make the lives of the admissions officers so much easier and they will be able to pick out those impressive nuggets a bit more than if you spend a significant amount of time trying to jam pack every detail possible into your resume. And and then it's effectively a, a, a word dense document. Like if you look at old newspapers or old wood press settings where they were trying to jam everything possible because paper was so expensive. Don't do that. <laughs> Clean, easy to evaluate, etc. I co-sign that completely. People do think that you want to overpack it to be all the more impressive. And really, it's the cleanness, it's the scannability. I think that's something I really impress on my students is make it scannable. They've, they're, they're not going to sit there and read every line and really think about what you're saying. They're going to glance down the page and certain things are going to jump out at them. And it's easier to jump out if there's not that many other words around it. You know, So, so do think about scannability. And on the admissions course on our website, we have a couple really good examples and templates for resumes. Um, another good resource, if any of you are the KJD where you're still in college, is to go to your school's career center or writing center. And no doubt they also have a, a good number of templates available to use as well. Okay, and then we have our last question. We're, we're ending on a good note, a nice juicy one. So, Lax Forever said, I'm wary of oversaturating my written materials with much of too much of the same content. 
How do I separate the content of my diversity statement and my personal statement when my personal statement centrally involves my identity, my full-time job, my why law motivation, my community volunteer experience, etc.? So, Aaron, let me kick that over to you first, you know, given your experience on the writing side of, of things. How do you approach that with students? Well, first, I want to say I think we can agree that lax forever means this person is a fan of LAX, the airport in Southern California. <laughs> More so that than lacrosse. There's a, I read a really what was it called? Like Pico, there was a book about, I mean, I don't know, like half the book took place in an airport and really asked you to think about what airports are like. And it, they, they really are. It's an extraordinary space. But anyway, in terms of the, the space that's available to, to, to tell your story to law school admissions people, definitely do not repeat anything statement to statement. You can, you know, obviously there's going to be some overlap because you remain the same person from essay to essay, but you don't need to articulate the same detail essay to essay. I think, though, the answer to this question is different this year than it would have been last year. I mean, last year we had updated writing prompts that we've seen this year are much different than they were last year. So last year we had some sort of open-ended diversity statement prompts. And in that case, you know, my advice is the the personal statement should be sort of forward-looking, should describe the why law. If your ethnic or racial identity is crucial to that why law, then that can go in the personal statement and you don't need to write a diversity statement unless you have something else to say. This year, you just use Harvard as an example, which I think we talked about last time. They have now two required essays. So there's a statement of purpose and a statement of perspective. So there you are, you are required to sort of allocate this personal material statement to statement. And so I would just be strategic about it, but I would I would do it in essence in the same way. The, the personal statement explains why you want to go to law school, why, you know, how did you come to be applying to law school right now at this moment? And, and what does the future look like? You know, what do you hope to do with your JD? Those aspects of your personal story that are relevant to answering those questions, and that's an important, like I just want to underline that, that stuff belongs in the statement of purpose. And then the statement of perspective, that's Harvard's essay and other schools have different kinds of optional essays, which are slightly more focused, but they, they sort of circle around the same issue, which is what is it about your background? What is it about your story? that gives you some angle on all this that somebody else may not have. So not quite why law, but like, you know, why you? Not not what do you want to do, but why are you the person to do it? What are you going to bring to it that other people can't bring? Those are like the big boxes. And, and but just again, I would repeat, like, even if a statement is required, you, you should not repeat anything in that, in that optional statement or diversity statement that you've said in the personal statement. You might write two great essays, but if they're repetitive, it's going to be annoying. Or if you have a particularly generous admissions officer, maybe they're not annoyed, but they're kind of unconsciously skipping over that diversity statement. And then you're missing a chance to say something else. Well, and Aaron, building off that comment, one thing I typically say to my students is it's okay if there's a minor character in your personal statement that then becomes the main character of your diversity statement or another statement. Because oftentimes these questions are inexplicably linked. Why do you want to go to law school and who are you? And so the bad analogy I use here, which perhaps I've used on a previous episode, is you can think of like the Marvel Cinematic Universe or the Star Wars universe where Disney has taken Boba Fett, who was on the screen for like five minutes in the first trilogy, and they've created this entire universe around Mandalorians, which would have been insane to someone in 
1981 who just walked out of seeing The Empire Strikes Back. So that's okay here. You know, if there's just a quick comment about your family or about you, your background and your personal statement, but then that becomes the central question and the central topic of the diversity statement, that's all right. Because I, as a reader, wouldn't view that as repetitive or redundant. I would view that as a completely separate branch of of this tree that you're you're presenting to me. So it, it's it's okay. I did really like how you put it though as forward looking versus backward looking. Or or maybe not backward looking as much as current looking who you are, how you got to this point. And I think that, that could be also a really helpful way for students who are not for whom when I mentioned like, oh it's just like the Marvel Cinematic Universe and Iron Man's off on the side for like five minutes and it just goes right over their head. So forward looking versus backward looking. Brigitte, what do you think though? Yeah, I think that I think that sounds that sounds just right. I mean, I often work with students who who work on their personal statement, and there might be a reference one line to something that then gets picked up and developed as as the diversity statement. So I think that makes sense. Now, sometimes I, you know, back in the day when I w- was working at UVA, I would read the the personal statement, and then I would read the the diversity statement, and I thought, oh gosh, they should have just done the diversity statement as their personal statement. It's so much better, so much stronger, and it really was uplifting, and it made me love them. So you know. So think carefully if you really need both, or sometimes you know your one total essay is is sufficient. I mean, of course, that doesn't work this year for Harvard because it's required. But most of the time, the diversity statement's not required. So yeah, I think I think it, it's you know that that's the general rule. And then sometimes there's these nuances when you actually get to the specifics. I think on that note, that means we've hit the end of this podcast. So, <laughs> so you know, a, a thank you to Brigitte and Aaron, but also again, ther- a very big thank you to our friends on Reddit who provide some really great questions for us. And we hope that uh, you appreciate this episode. Also, as, since we made references to previous episodes, do feel free to listen in on those because we will have gone into a, a lot greater depth about a lot of these questions. And, and feel free to check out our admissions course on the Seven Stage website, where we also go into some pretty great depth and detail about a lot of these questions. Thanks for listening to this episode of How to Get into Law School, a Seven Sage podcast. Please subscribe on your favorite podcast platforms. If you're interested in more help and guidance for getting into law school, also check out our website at sevensage.com. That's the number seven, S-A-G-E.com. You can learn more about our LSAT course and tutoring, as well as the work that our professional admissions and writing consultants can do to help you with your applications. You can even schedule a free consultation with our LSAT tutors and with our admissions consultants.